This is scripture from 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. And it's great to be with you tonight. I... Uh I feel like a fish out of water, quite frankly, because uh, many of you are younger than my children, are the same age my, as my kids, so I feel really out of place, but I'm glad I've been invited to be here, and I'm glad to uh, have the opportunity to talk about the passage that uh, Jordan just uh, read to us. You guys have been in First Peter. It's a great book. Uh, as we go into this passage, we're going to talk about the idea of curiosity and how our lives create curiosity in the world. For those who don't know Jesus that it might cause them to want to know more about who he is and what it means to be his follower. As a kid, uh, I grew up in northern Indiana, just outside of South Bend, Indiana. Um, I grew up in a part of our little town of Mishawaka, Indiana, where uh, we had, um, when I, when I went, into, went to kindergarten, my address was 57991 Victory Road. But while I was in kindergarten, the city of Mishawaka actually added us to the city itself. We weren't just in the county with the Mishawaka address. And so we became 1803 Victory Street. Now, that's a big deal for a kid to try to learn that. But we were just on the fringe of town. And so around us, there were a lot of people who did 4-H and stuff like that. And you're looking at the St. Joe County 4-H Reserve Grand Champion duck owner. Uh, yeah, quite an accomplishment. That's a big accomplishment in Indiana, by the way. Um, but I would go to the fair as a kid. Before I even was involved in 4-H, I raised ducks, um, and it was about all we could do. We had an old dog pen that my dad said I could put some ducks in, had some ducks. They won something at the fair because we fed them well, I guess. Um, and we would go to the fair, though, when I was littler, even before I was involved in the St. Joe County Fair, we would go to the fair as a family and just sort of go to things and in those days, I don't think they're quite as big a deal now, but there used to be these, these, um, these little events or these little venues throughout the fair. There'd be four or five of them where it would be something odd that you could see, a person or something. I remember one time they had a 12-foot man, and, I was, and they, the way the guy outside talked about it and the way they decorated the outside of this little booth, and it was a very tiny little like trailer-like thing, and... Um, the way he talked about it, just for me, as like an 8, 9, 10-year-old, and we go to the fair, I wanted to see the 12-foot man. And he'd talk about how he was so tall in fourth grade, and he'd go through all this. And then there was Lobster Boy. Now, there actually was a very famous Lobster Boy that I think was mentioned even in a Deadpool movie or something. Uh, lobster Boy was, was pretty famous because he actually, because the way he was born, had some things that made him look like a lobster, and unfortunately, they used and abused him, and all that stuff in fairs, but the lobster boy we had was not quite the same. And at, at 9 or 10, I was so interested. My dad would always say, it's not worth the dollar to walk through. You know, you go in one thing, you look at this, and you walk out. It's not worth it. But they would just, with all the advertisement, I was so curious. And my curiosity was, 
so heavy that when I became about, uh, I guess, 11 or 12, my neighbor's church, they had uh, like a fundraiser, and so they needed like kids to help like cl- carry away trays and things from the food they were serving or whatever and, and clean the trays. And so I worked with my best friend Lance, and we cleaned these trays. And then his parents just let us roam the St. Joe County Fair, and they gave us each like five bucks, which would be like giving us 25 or 50 bucks a day. It was a big deal. And I immediately said to Lance, I want to find Lobster Boy. I want to find the 12-foot man. I've got to see that. And Lance is like, I don't want to spend my money on that. I want to go on these rides. And I'm like, this, this, I'm so curious about what these things are. And so we kind of made this agreement. We would spend our money partially on seeing it. We would just see Lobster Boy not, uh, and the 12-foot man and not some of the other things. And we'd ride some rides. And I remember we went in to see Lobster Boy. And you literally walked up two steps. There was a little platform, and there was a guy sitting on a bench. He was uh, shorter than a normal person. He, um, he was kind of balding, and he looked to be about middle age. He was supposed to be the boy. He's probably been doing this for 30 or 40 years. And he's sitting there on the bench, and with like a heavy smoker's voice, he says, how you doing? <laughs> and he's got like these foam things on the end of his hands, and then on the end of the feet, he goes, how you doing? And then we just left. And Lance said, let's not do the 12-foot man guy. I said, but he's got to be real. I mean, for years I've heard about the 12-foot guy. So we go. We pay our buck for the 12-foot guy. We go in, and there's a guy way way up high, and you just see this much of him. And then you're supposed to see his legs, but you knew it was another person halfway down this platform, right, who's going like this. While he's going like this. So it's like two guys on two levels of this contraption they'd created trying to pretend they're one person. And as you go in, the guy with a deep smoker voice goes, how you doing? <laughs> and you walked out. And that was your whole buck. Now, I was, I was so curious that I wanted to, I tried to give him a chance. We got to go see. And there was like Ape Girl and there were these other things. And you just wanted to see. Finally, Lance said, we're not doing that. And I didn't get my curiosity satisfied, but I I don't know maybe what it is for you over the course of your life, maybe when you were a kid, maybe as a teenager, as an adult now, what what is it that has driven your curiosity, you've been curious to see something, experience something, go somewhere, uh, meet someone, that just, it just is a driving curiosity. I think God wired human beings, and there are some scriptures even in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that hint at the idea that God created us as human beings with a curiosity to know more than what we know, to experience more than what we experience. And even when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, the concept of them naming the animals and tending to the garden, all that was a part of that curiosity that God wired us with. And part of that curiosity is to know God, to know who it is that's out there that's that's orchestrating everything, that's got some purpose or plan for my life and all of this, and there is this curiosity that we have. Now, when we become followers of Christ, God then wants us to be shining lights that provide for people some fulfillment of that curiosity. They look at our lives and they say, okay, I'm looking for something higher, something bigger, some higher power, something that makes sense, something that puts all this together. And that person 
They're not perfect. They're not got, they don't have it all together, but there's something different. They've got this certain thread of peace in their life. They've got a certain level of joy and hope that's so different, so distinct. I, I'm curious what that's about. I'm, I, I've, I've lived a lot longer than most of you, twice as long as many of you in this room. And um, I've met a lot of people over those years who've gone from one world religion to this kind of mysticism to this kind of thing, and they're looking for it, and they're looking for it, and they're trying to piece everything together. And I think in the passage that we're looking at tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2, there is this, this sense that our lives are to create this curiosity that's going to draw people's attention to God to want to know Christ and who he is, what it means to follow him. If you have your Bibles open or you uh, have your mobile device, you go to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll have the verses again on the screen in a minute. But I want to talk about raising curiosity for Christ by the way in which we live. And, and I want to ask this simple question tonight. Would anyone say your life raises their curiosity about, about Christ or being a follower of Christ? Would anyone in your life, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you live with, your friends, people you hang out with, people on social media, would any of them say his life, her life, makes me curious about who God is, who, who this Jesus is, or what it means to follow Jesus? Is there anyone who would say your life makes them curious about God? And I think what Peter's trying to emphasize here, you've been looking at this book, and I've watched some of the previous messages and conversations you've had, and, and, and for me, this is a great book to study in, in this era because when Peter wrote this letter to the church, they were beginning to feel some persecution. It was getting more uncomfortable to live out your faith in the world, and so there's some persecution, some pushback coming. But he, he's going to actually double down and say, that's when we even live lives that are more distinct and more curious in the conversations that are spurred by the lives we live. Now, I want to look at verses 11 through 17 in kind of two clumps. And I know one of the things you're doing as you're studying Peter is, uh, 1 Peter is to kind of pull back the curtain a bit and see how does somebody prepare a sermon? How do you look at the Bible and even study it for yourself? And for me, one of the things I do, and I've been doing this for a long time now, preparing to preach every weekend. And my wife will even say to me on Tuesday or Wednesday, say, has it clumped yet? For me in my process, when I'm looking at a passage like 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17, as I have been this week, as I've been looking at it, I'm looking for kind of the natural ways it clumps, like what are just some themes that begin to stand out. Sometimes the divisions in the Bible, how they do the paragraphs, will work with it, but sometimes I think they missed it, or sometimes it emerges there are other clumps. And so this week it clumped for me, and there were two clumps, <laughs> 11 to 12 and 13 to 17. Sometimes when you're looking at a portion of scripture, just studying it for yourself, or maybe for a small group, or for discussion in a small group, or maybe you have an opportunity to share something from God's word, one way to approach it is just keep reading it over and watch where it just sort of naturally clumps. And so for me, the clumps, or the points, if you will, the major points come out at, in verses 11 and 12. This is what makes the lost curious. Now we talk about the lost, we're talking about people who are far from God. And uh, it was referenced earlier that Jesus goes uh, for the one and leaves the 99. That's a principle in Scripture that God loves the lost. God is willing to go out of his way to take great risk to reach those who are far from him. And there are incredible stories of God doing that in many people's lives. 
So when we talk about the lost, we talk about people who don't know Jesus, who are far from God, and, and what makes the lost curious about Christ? And I think verses 11 and 12 give us some of that if we look at uh, those two verses. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which, ra- which wage war, I should say that a few times, against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That one phrase in there, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he said, let your light shine so that when they see your light that's shining for me, they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. That means even people far from God, when they see our lives, can say, I don't know what that's all about. I don't understand all that. It stirred a curiosity in me, but boy, I'm glad for that life, God, because that life does something for me. It helps me in this dark and confusing and frustrating and polarized world, this person is like this, this light that brings distinction. And I'm curious about this person. And so it causes them to be drawn toward God. Now, as we talk about what makes the lost curious, I think there are four things here that make the lost curious about our lives. Number one, we are people God loves. It says, dear friends. In the original Greek, this word is dear beloved little ones. Dear loved children, eight times in the book of 1 Peter, Peter tells us that God loves us. We are objects of God's love. We're going to be thinking about that in the next couple of weeks here, even in the next 10 days. We're going to think about how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we're still sinners, Jesus died for us. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, so that we might have life in him. We are people God loves, though we did not deserve it. I didn't deserve God's love. There's nothing I ever did. I didn't clean myself up enough. I wasn't good enough. I didn't deserve God's love. But he loved me. Even though I didn't deserve to be loved, he loved me in my sin, not after I somehow met him halfway, but he loved me. God loves you. You know, I I was raised in a church. We talked about Jesus. I heard about Jesus. I memorized Bible verses. A great church. I was also raised in a home where there was a lot of difficulty my mom had a lot of mental illness and so there was a lot of chaos in our home and I have one brother Troy who is on staff here as one of our pastors as well and um, it was a very bad situation Uh, my mom called me the F word about 10 times a day threw things uh, just my mom had a lot of emotional problems but she loved Jesus she'd been in a car accident was knocked unconscious for three months when she was 14 and as she had to learn to walk and talk and all over again Today it's called a traumatic brain injury. It changes the personality. It affects the person. And my mom had all that in our home, and it was a chaotic home. So by the time I came out of the house at 18 and went off to college, I was crushed. When it came to my relationship with God and my part in the church, I thought of, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how we're, some of us are the hand and some of us are the eye, some of us are the ear in the body of Christ. We all play a different role, but we're all one body, many parts. I thought I was the crud underneath the toenail of the body of Christ. I mean, I really felt that way and believed that about myself. I had so low self-esteem. Now, somehow my brother came out of the same situation, was an arrogant son of a gun, (laughs) and uh, still is to this day, actually. Uh, We we came out a little different. We both had to find our way into who we are in Christ. And uh, thankfully, I can say he is a very humble follower of Jesus and a great servant of God. But we, I came out just crushed. 
And I remember one day I was reading a book. It was actually a book I was reading for class on biblical counseling and how I would counsel in ministry. And the book ministered to me. And the book said, God knows every filthy thought you've ever thought, every mean thing you've ever done, every horrible thing you've ever said, every person you've ever hurt, and he loves you as you are. And when that hit deep in my heart, I I was 20 years old. And when that hit in my heart, it began to change who I was as I began to understand God loves me. Boy, our world is full of people who have been crushed by the families they've been brought up in. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You were crushed in your home for whatever reason, whether it was alcoholism, whether it was divorce, whether it was, some of you know what I'm talking about. And God loves you no matter how many bad circumstances you've gone through, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And the world needs to know that we know God loves us, not in arrogance, but saying, I didn't deserve it, but God loves me and he loves you too. It's a pretty simple message, but but the lost are curious, and they're curious that God loves us. Secondly, we're strangers passing through. In the next phrase in the verse, it says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The idea is we're just passing through. This world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Paul would say that three or four times. Peter says it here. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy this place and make the best of it and experience all that God would allow us to experience in this world. But we have to understand that we are, when we know Jesus, our permanent home is in heaven and we are journeying through. And some of us get so attached to the things of this world. I've done over 350 funerals in my ministry career. I've never seen a hearse carrying a casket or somebody driving to the graveyard for graveside service or coming to a memorial here at Calvary where they've got a big old U-Haul trailer behind it. Because the things of this world don't last. And so while we can enjoy these things as gifts from God, we need to understand we're strangers passing through. We're a part of something much grander, much greater, eternal. And people are longing that it's more than just the stuff they own. The experiences they've had, the highs they've experienced. In your generation, anxiety, depression, suicide is skyrocketing. I wasn't planning to go to New York City tonight, but going to New York City City because our oldest son had a friend who took his own life. And it's been hard on their friend. And it was a coworker, and and uh, my wife and I, because I wasn't preaching in the main room this weekend, uh, I said, "Let's let's go and just spend the weekend just hanging out." And uh, the the world is curious. Where is your citizenship? Is it all cut up in the things of this world, or are you a citizen of heaven? Thirdly, we're soldiers battling sinful desires. We're soldiers battling sinful desires. It says, to abstain from, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which which wage war against your soul. These are the desires of greed, lust, and pride. That's the root of everything. You boil it down to money, power, and sex. That drives so much, and Satan throws it at us, and the world is full of it, and, and it's coming at us, and God has a proper place for money, power, and sex, but the evil desires that the world and Satan have for us 
are going to overwhelm us, and they're overwhelming our friends and our coworkers and our family members and our neighbors. But I like how it says the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Satan wants to destroy your soul, wants to rob you of the hope, joy, and love, and peace that God wants you to have. Our war, my war is not against any political party. My war is not a cultural war. My war is not a sociological war. My war isn't an economic war. The basic war we're in is a spiritual battle, a spiritual war, and it's for the souls of human beings. And Jesus was resurrected to bring life to those souls, to bring eternity to those souls. And how we understand that we are soldiers in this, in this battle with sinful desires is very important. I, I put the, the tag under this, just like everyone else. We're not to be holier-than-thou Christians. It also doesn't mean we say we, we just go sin so we can sin and say we're just like you. No, we're supposed to be distinct from this world. This book is full of be holy as I am holy, says God. But what it does say is that as we seek to live in holiness, we say to the world, I can't do this on my own. It's only through the Holy Spirit in me that I can deal with the lust, the greed, the pride that crops up in my, my broken, fallen heart. I need the Spirit of God to renew me and make me the new man that I am, the new woman that I am in Christ. Our war isn't with all the things of this world. Our war is a battle with the sinful desires and our neighbors, our friends, your, your fellow students, people around you every day, they need to see that you're not holier than thou. You have the same struggles they do. I'm always shocked when maybe I tell a story while I'm preaching and people will say to me after the service, you know, I'm so, I so appreciate that you're willing to talk a little bit about some of your failures and your flaws. I got a lot of them, so it's easy to talk about them. But I think people are looking for Christians who don't put themselves up on a pedestal of holier than thou, but are willing to say, I too struggle. Just because I have Jesus doesn't mean my passions are gone. I'm trying to use them, experience them the way God has for me. Fourthly, we're people God loves, we're strangers passing through, we're soldiers battling sinful desires just like everyone else. But fourthly, we're signs that point to God. That verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. <laughs> Some translations will say the unsaved or the lost. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. We're now living in a time even more than when I was your age where the, what the world says is wrong is what God says is right. And so people will say to you, you are wrong because you believe this. You are wrong because you behave this way. And this is saying what we do is we just keep living such good lives that the good we do for our neighbors, our friends, others, those who are hurting, we are such good people in this culture that they can't deny our compassion even though we have to live and find fulfillment in living by the convictions God has from us from Scripture. So these four things will help people around you be curious about Christ and following Christ. That God loves you. 
that you're passing through, your home is really heaven. You're soul, a soldier battling the same struggles they're going through, but you have victory through Christ in these things. And you're a sign that posts to God, but at first confuses others, that they, they glorify God. Just like I said, if the, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know, we're, we're, our lives are meant to send, to be like one giant arrow pointing to Jesus, how we live as Christians. Just everything about us, our words, our behavior, our relationships, how we react and respond, how, what our work ethic is. Do we show up on time? Do we do what we're supposed to do? That, that's, all to be, that's all a part of just pointing to Jesus. It's not unimportant stuff. It's all ways we can point to Jesus. It's easy to point people away from Jesus. When I was a kid, I was about eight years old there in northern Indiana. Uh, if you've ever seen The Middle, that TV show, that's basically my upbringing. Um, the, uh, I think my brother is actually a contributing writer or something to that show because they even had to use a hose in their sink for a while because the sink wasn't working, so did we. I mean, it was just crazy. They're washing the dishes in their bathtub. We did that for four or five years. We didn't have a toilet in our house for an entire year. That's a whole other story. Um, but my dad, my mom, because of her accident, couldn't drive. She just, mental health-wise, couldn't drive. She was institutionalized a few times and wasn't allowed to drive. And um, my, my dad decided, instead of having a family car, he wanted to have a family RV. He was a factory worker, worked hard in a factory, eight hours a day, in a very hot place in the summer, in a very cold place in the winter. And... Um, so he decided we we're going to have an RV, but he, he found this RV at a used car lot. This is about 1976, probably, 74. And the Who were a really big band at the time. And they had an album called The Magic Bus. You can Google it, and you can see The Magic Bus. And so he decided, he saw this. Now picture this. It's a UPS truck, basically. You know the big brown UPS truck? Paint it Pepto-Bismol pink. And then with the same, this is already done. I mean, somebody converted this big bread truck or UPS truck into this, this big pink Pepto-Bismol. And we had the sliding doors. Uh, there was no heat in this thing, so my dad put a lit, don't do this, a lit, uh, uh, what do you call it, kerosene heater in the middle of the floor. And we'd light it and drive down the highway. That's, <laughs> that's not what you should do with your children. We had to leave the doors open when it was five degrees out because we'd all die of the fumes of the thing if we left the doors closed. If somebody closed both doors, my dad would quickly scream for the doors to be opened. Um, but this was this giant pink, and they, so somebody had converted this around 1970, and they put the font from the Who album, The Magic Bus, it said it on both sides of this thing. It was shag carpeting on the floor, on the walls, all the way to the ceiling. Yeah, it's pretty disgusting, actually, <laughs> that we own this thing. There was a big bed in the back, and it had a little stove. It was just a little camper. You know, we had a little table. So when we were driving down the road, Troy and I were just sitting at the table. Dad put a bucket seat next to the other side of where the driver would be. He put a seat for Mom and strapped her in and with a belt. And it was quite an experience. But because we only needed one vehicle, we only needed one driver, it was, it was our car. And we would drive to church in it. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And uh, we would pick up on Sunday this little, little dear sweet lady. She'd been a missionary in her past. Her name was Olga Smith. She literally was 4'2", just a sweet 
elderly woman, probably in her 70s at the time. And we would pick her up. She lived in this retirement kind of home that was seven stories, the tallest building in Mishawaka, Indiana. And she would come out on her seventh floor balcony and wait for us. And when she'd see us pull up, <laughs> it's obvious, the big pink Pepto-Bismol <laughs> UPS truck pulls up. She would get in the elevator and come down and get in, and she'd sit with Troy and me at the table, and we'd drive to church, and we'd drop her off after church and pick her up in the evening and do the same thing. My dad owned that thing for about eight months, and uh, the neighbor came over and said, John, do you know what's on top of that? I said, I have no idea. I've never been up there. It's too high. And the neighbor said, well, John, <laughs> I, found, I, I met the guy who actually converted that thing, and he wanted to know what you did with what's on top of that thing. And my dad said, I have no idea what's on top of it. So I'm a kid, and I'm, they get a ladder out. They go up, and they're laughing and talking, and, and they don't let me go up to climb the ladder to see. Now my curiosity is what's on top of this. And it wasn't until years. So Larry, our neighbor, and my dad went to the hardware store and bought a bunch of spray paint and spray, spray, spray painted the top of the, the big UPS Pepto-Bismol truck that night. And it wasn't probably for another four or five years that I got old enough, my dad told me what was up on there, on top. It was a giant hand giving the finger on the entire top <laughs> of this pink Pepto-Bismol truck. Now, we've been picking up dear sweet Olga Smith. She would look down at us from her seventh floor balcony. And she knew we pulled up. She'd come down. We've been doing that for like a year, three times a week. You know, you can, we were trying to welcome her to church with us, and we were communicating a whole different message to her every time we pulled up. You know, our lives, our lives sometimes, we think we're communicating one thing and we're communicating something totally different. And yet we have a world around us who's longing for love, longing for a real home, a real place to belong, a, a world around us that's, that's longing to know they can have victory over the things that are just capturing them, the greed, the lust, the pride of this world. Our lives would be a sign that point to God, not something that distracts people away from God. Do any of your friends or neighbors or classmates have any curiosity about your life? The love of God, what your real home is, how you deal with the battles of life. Does your life point them to God? What makes the lost curious? Secondly, what makes the Lord clear? Verse 13 through uh, verse 17. What makes the Lord clear? Notice in verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors or Sent by him, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There are two things there. First of all, what makes the Lord clear is by being humble in our lives. Being humble. Being humble. Even by submitting to those we don't like. Nero was the emperor at this time. About the time Peter wrote, if not at the time Peter wrote, just after the time Peter wrote, Nero would set fire to Rome just for his own good pleasure as the emperor in 64 AD. Rome would burn for six days and seven nights. And everybody looked at Nero because the word was out that he did it just to enjoy watching the city burn from his palace. And so he blamed the Christians and they turned against the Christians and started 
putting them into places like the Colosseum with meat on them and wild animals. They took Christians because they thought they were the ones who had burned the city, and Nero actually made night torches to light the city by putting Christians on fire on stakes alive. Now, this persecution is building that. If it wasn't there yet, it was going to happen within about a year of Peter's writings because the, the stress and the trouble was coming. And so nobody liked Nero, nobody liked the leadership, but yet Peter is saying, do all you can do to submit to the authorities God has placed over you as long as you can live out your faith. Humility is so missing in our world. And we as Christians ought to be some of the most humble people. Being humble is a big way we make the Lord clear in our lives. Secondly, doing good. Verse 14, we read that, that phrase there. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Doing good. It's the best way to silence critics and skeptics. Is by doing good for other people. Getting involved and feeding the poor and helping the marginalized and caring for those who are pushed to the fringes of society. When the church is at its best, we are the ones who are on the fringes ministering to those who have been cast aside. Doing good. Thirdly, living free. In verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Live as God's slaves. Or God's servants. You see, we're free because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When you put your faith in Christ, you are free from your sin, your shame, your guilt, your condemnation, from hell itself. We're free. But not free to just do whatever we want. We're free to serve others and God. And great fulfillment comes when we prioritize others and God. Living free. People are trapped by addictions, by sin. There's so much bondage in people's lives today. So many chains and knots and relationships and brokenness and pain. And we are the ones who can be living free to serve others and God. And finally, what makes the Lord clear? Being kind. Not just being good, but being kind. One of the most disturbing things to me in the last three or four years, a time when many of you have come to maturity, in the last probably 10 years in our country, is that both the left and the right who name the name of Jesus have been so mean-spirited. I barely look at social media anymore because my heart was breaking so much to see Christians who name the name of Jesus being so vicious to each other. In fact, I would post something. I'd say, this is the day the Lord has made. Open your church. Or whatever it would be. It's like, what? I'm just telling you that this is the day the Lord has made. But it wasn't so much what they said to me. It was what then they would say to each other. I'm thinking, these are Christians? Our world is hungry for people just to be kind. And notice w w what he says here. In that last verse, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. There is no one you should disrespect. I don't care what their sexual orientation is. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care what their age is. I don't care their ethnicity, their nationality. 
I don't care what their faith is. There is no human being we should ever disrespect because God loves every one of them, and so should we. And God is kind toward every one of them, every person. Doesn't mean we agree with everything and everyone, but we are kind to everyone. And yet, I think the curiosity of a watching world has been turned away by Christianity, not just by people who are on the right or people who are on the left, but we're so polarized over all kinds of things that have nothing to do with political stances. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. I hope you get to know one another and love each other. My daughter got married last summer, met her husband here in YA. That's a different kind of loving the believers. Um, <laughs> but it does happen, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a good thing. But we're also to love the family of God. And I trust you love others who know Jesus. Then it says, fear God. Why would I think, think, why would I say that fear God is in the being kind statement here? Talking about loving each other, respecting each other. Then it's going to say, honor the emperor. Why is fear God in the middle of this? Because God's going to hold us accountable for not just our holiness, but our kindness. Sometimes we emphasize holiness to the point we forget he's going to hold us accountable. You can be holy and mean and rude and nasty. Jesus was holy and kind. He was truth and grace. God is going to hold us accountable for how we respect other human beings, how we love other brothers and sisters in Christ. He's going to hold us accountable for how we honor those who are in leadership, whether we like them or not. Kindness. See, the world is watching, and the people around you There is a natural curiosity God has planted into every human being to know the God that's out there. That's why he sent his word, the written word of God. That's why he sent the living word, Jesus. But it's why he has sent us. So that we can be ones who stir up that curiosity and say, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And how do we do that? By being humble. By doing good. By living free. We're free to serve others in God, not ourselves or anything else. By being kind. By being kind. Do you live life in such a way that it stirs up the curiosity of a watching world? Or is your life just for you and you don't care what other people think about Jesus or what it means to follow Jesus? Your, your peers, your friends, the people around you, they may not know how to verbalize it, but they're hungry to know God. And God has put you in their life to be one who stirs up curiosity for Christ. I hope you are. When I was teaching at a Christian camp, when I was about 20 years old, same camp where I was reading that, that book that really helped me see that God loved me, I was teaching kids, and I wanted to teach them what it meant to be a servant like Jesus. I was teaching the John 13 passage you're going to look at next week when you talk about washing feet like Jesus did on Maudie Thursday. And I wanted to say, I, I just wanted to show them what it really meant to be a servant. So I even got my own towel, a big beach towel, and I put it around myself because it says Jesus put a towel around himself. He took the basin, so I got a basin. I knew one of the kids in the group, he was one of the staff kids there, was there every week, and I knew this kid, John, he was like five years old, 
beautiful brown eyes, this little kid, and he had the nastiest feet I have ever come across in my life. I still think Jesus wouldn't have washed his feet. I mean, these were nasty feet. So I thought, I'm going to bring John up here, and I'm going to show them what it's like. So I'm reading the passage, and all of a sudden behind me, this, I hear this ha-choo, and everybody's laughing in the group, the kids. These are like elementary age kids. And this little five-year-old's behind me, and everybody's just laughing. So the, my, my partner in teaching, she was in the back, and she's laughing. And uh, I'm like, oh, man. So I, I just kept reading the passage because nothing's going to stop me from showing what it means to be a servant. And another hachu. And by this time, everybody's laughing. My partner's like flat on the back bench, just she can't control the situation. So I glance back, and there's John. He sneezed twice, and he's going, ha, 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 with the stuff between his nose and his hands. And here I am with my own beach towel, teaching him what it means to be a servant. And so I said to his nine-year-old sister, Amy, go get paper towels, clean your brother up, and we'll start over again. Let's sing some more songs. And while we're singing the songs, and I'm watching that little girl clean up her brother up front of everybody, <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my towel wrapped around me, I didn't want to use my towel on that stuff. It struck me as not being a very good example of what I'm trying to live out in front of them. Oh, the people around us need us to be good examples of Christ followers. We don't have to be perfect examples. We can be in the journey. We can be a part of three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. But I'm telling you, there is a world around you every day, the people you know, maybe the people you're sitting with here, who are curious, is there a God, does he matter? And if you know Jesus, you've got the answer. So live in such a way that you stir up the curiosity of the people around you for Christ. Would you pray with me? Thanks, Father, for Jesus. Thanks, Father, that he came and lived among us. He didn't shy away from smelly, stinky feet. He didn't shy away from the marginalized, the lost. Father, help us to be aware that there are people all around us curious about God. How does he fit into this world and into life? We who know the crucified, buried, and raised Savior have an opportunity. Have an opportunity to be clear in pointing toward Jesus. May our lives be a, a sign that points directly to him. May we be kind. May we be good. Father, may, may we be people who are known for our humility. May we be people who are known for our freedom to serve. But may people see Jesus in us. We pray in Jesus' name. I want to say thank you for letting me be here tonight, and I want to say thank you to, uh, to, to Brian and, and Sarah and uh, uh, Jacob and others who lead. Uh, you guys, bless me, you don't know it, I watch YA a lot, if not all the time. I see it at some point in the week. You bless me, you challenge our church, that's a good thing, in a great way. And we're always thinking about, okay, how is this generation going to be incorporated into the full body as they age? And we want that and long for that because you are a vital part of who we are. You're not an appendage or something separate. You are Calvary Community Church if you call Calvary your home. I know, also I know some of you get to come from other churches and be blessed on a Thursday night. And God bless you. You're a wonderful part of your churches as well. 
But I just want you to know how much we appreciate you from our elders to our pastors to our leadership to our congregation. Thank you for who you are and thank you for being here. And I trust that you will stir up the curiosity of your generation. They are looking and longing, but only Jesus.